So welcome back to Blended. I'm joined by another group of inspirational supply chain professionals who are passionate about the issues of equality and diversity and have a lot to share with us on this topic. Welcome to Julie, Adrian, Sabrina, Julian, and Kareem will be joining us later. Um, let's get started. I'm super excited to have you guys here. So can each of you tell me who you are, what you do, how you identify, and what does equality and diversity mean to you? Julie, I'm going to start with you. Thanks, Sarah. Well, thank you very much for having me on this episode of Blended. I'm really excited to be talking with the group here and yourself about uh, diversity and inclusion and everything around it. Um, first off, I myself am an IT manager at a Fortune 500 company. I'm a huge advocate for women and girls in STEM and in sports. Um, I identify as, I guess, pronouns of she and her. Um, I also identify as female and uh, Canadian-born Chinese. Uh, and what diversity and inclusion actually mean to me um, is that just as treating everybody as a human being, right? Um, with respect, kindness, humility, and without judgment. Awesome. I love that. And I'm super excited for you to join us. Adrian, over to you. Tell us who you are, what you do, how you identify, and what does equality and diversity mean to you? Hello, my name is Adrian Betton. I am a uh, British-born African and Jamaican descent uh, Black man. Um, I am a procurement director, uh, which works across uh, the whole of the public sector and private sector within here in the UK. Um, very, very passionate about equality, um, inclusion and sustainability um, in the supply chain. And what it means to me is making sure that everybody has an equal opportunity to opportunity around the table. So not necessarily removing chairs from the table, but adding more chairs around the table so that everybody can sit there and have their say in their respects and especially in regards to um, uh, people um, from a diverse background and gender diversity as well. Awesome. I love that and I'm excited that you could join us. Sabrina, over to you. Hello, hello. Um, I'm Sabrina Booker. I am an American-born Black woman. I use the pronouns of she and her. I am currently a contracting specialist for the United States Army Corps of Engineers, as well as I assist a supply chain management consulting firm, Bridgeport Group Solutions, with business acquisitions. Um, I plan on graduating this, this, uh, this summer. And so what equality means to me is when everyone is given the same opportunity and that their actions are just being measured by being fair and reasonable. And so just making sure that when you do have um, that seat that there is being inclusion facilitated. Awesome. I love that. And really excited that you could be here. Julian, hello. How are you? Hello, I'm doing good. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Julian Shields. I identify as a Black male, pronouns he and him. I am a doctoral candidate at Auburn University in the Counseling Education Supervision Program. And my background and what I do is I'm a disability consultant for businesses. And so I help businesses understand workers with disabilities and how to implement them into their businesses and how to create safe workspaces so work can be sustained for individuals with disabilities. And equality to me is making sure that everybody feels comfortable, feels safe, 
to share their ideas, to share what they think, and to feel like their beliefs are heard by the company and that changes are made with the idea of everybody best interest at heart. Yeah, absolutely. And that's important work on the on the disability front. I know we're going to be talking about that on blended as we move forward, because um, it is important. And I think a lot more companies are, you know, taking a look at opening their doors to obviously diverse perspectives. And that includes disability, which I feel that we don't talk about nearly enough. So let's kick off the conversation. I know you guys talked about what it, what equality means to you, but what's the difference between equality and diversity? I think, you know, Julian, you kind of alluded to it, right? Where diversity, we're sharing our thoughts and perspective, but equality might be being heard. But I'd like to get an idea from you. Julie, did you want to start with that one? Yeah, I'll take that one. And starting with inclusion and equality, equality being the idea that everybody feels and truly believes that we are all equal when it comes to importance due to company, regardless of position, regardless of gender, regardless of race. And then the other part of that, talking about inclusion is not only are we feeling important, but are everybody's ideas and beliefs being implemented into solutions. I love that. That's great. Julie, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, of course. I echo everything that Julian has just said. Like, I, I don't think I could sum it up any better. <laughs> but I definitely see that we need to bring diversity forward, of course, because everyone does have a different perspective and giving everyone an equal opportunity to share those opinions um, and being, as you said, heard. Because I think that's what's really lacking here when it comes to diversity and inclusion is being heard. It's one thing to recognize everyone for their differences, but it's having that reciprocated and uh, really tuning into the details of what they're sharing. Um, rather than staying on the surface. Yeah. Does that mean that we are, when we talk about equality, does that mean that we're not just ticking a box, Adrian or Sabrina? Yes, I would definitely say not ticking a box is, I think when we talk about in terms of taking a box, you know, we think that we're going through the right steps of, yeah, we're, we're including these these all these different groups, but it, it actually excludes so much. And I think that equality kind of comes in because you have a company who has the box and then you have their core values. And so it's really just saying the equality is, okay, are we holding our standards up to what our core values are, which are things like transparency, your ethics, your responsibility to your team. Um, and so when you, when you talk about equality and then the core values, do, does that all you know, mesh and align? So I do think that's important. It's so true. Adrian, can can companies actually deliver if they don't understand their core values and how diversity and inclusion, equality fit into that? Yeah, I think that um, it's a very important thing that we have to define um, what it means to each individual people group, what it means to each individual company as well, how you... Um, you do the action part of that, as opposed you've got the mental and the moral part of that, but the action uh, might be slightly different depending on which people group that you're talking to. And I think it's very important that we recognize uh, around the table 
all the different groups, which is kind of like uh, equality, but equity is talking about um, making sure that you uh, apportion out the resources so that all of those people can have equality, you know? And so that might be, look different for different types of people groups around the table. So it's a, it's a, a big consideration to make. Well, and it's interesting, right? Because we've got diverse, the word diversity, we've got the, the word equity, we've got the word inclusion, and we've got the word equality. And so some people might look at that bunch of words and be like, okay, which one is it, guys? Where are we playing? And how do we figure this out? So what would you say to somebody who comes to you with, with that kind of mindset? Is it all of them? Is it two of them? Is it three of them? Is it all, you know, all four of them? Can I read something? I just wanted to read something out. I was looking this up. Equality means each individual or group of people is given the same resources or opportunity. And equity recognizes that each person has different circumstances and allocates the exact resources and opportunities needed to reach an equal outcome. So one's about outcome and one's about the people that are involved in that outcome. So I think that as much as people use the words interchangeably, they do mean something different. Just like us talking on the supply chain uh, podcast, people use um, procurement, supply chain, yes. buyers, all <laughs> interchangeable, and they're all <laughs> inter in, they all have a distinct word associated to them and a distinct definition, but in colloquial conversation, they seem to be used interchangeable, just like bid and tender. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I think I think the answer really is there. We need to use all of the words, but we need to understand which e what each one of those actually means to the roles and our core values and what we're what we're looking to bring to the table and and bring out of the company and of the teams. Exactly. So I love that. And I'm so glad that you brought that definition to the table. So when I researched for this show, you know, I found that there is still some debate happening around the two concepts and their relationships. I mean, for example, 40 years ago, very few campaigners talked of diversity as a goal. The objective was equality. But as overt bigotry and discrimination started to diminish, diminish, the goal of equality became refined as a drive for greater diversity. What does everyone think about that? Has diversity replaced equality or do we need both? I definitely feel that we still need both because, you know, like he said, as much as we use them interchangeably, you can have diversity without equality. And so you can have, you can have people that bring on a diverse group of people and say, if we're sitting at a table and there's 20 people um, di of diverse backgrounds, but only two people are making the decision, all those people are not really being heard and their decisions and their, their values or things that they can contribute are not being heard. And so that whole thing about diversity is everybody's like, oh, we want diversity, diversity. I think on the surface, it looks really good. It's saying, we are about the push. We want to create this, you know, environment. And then when you start, you know, talking to people, how they feel, is this really happening? You can start to see that the equality and diversity are very different. And people kind of start telling you when you kind of peel back the onion. Yeah, I think that's so true. Peeling back the onion. Julian, you're nodding your head. I know you want to jump in here. 
Yeah, and just piggybacking off what Sabrina was saying, so I have to share this quick story of how I was working with this one company in Memphis, Tennessee, and they rolled out this big campaign about we're we're committed to diversity and we're committed to hiring employees with disabilities. But when they brought me in, I started looking at their sheets and their policies. None of their absentee policies, none of their, if you miss work, who do you call, what do you do? None of their policies was inclusive. And so they was inclusive in heart. They was inclusive in nature. They was inclusive in spirit. But as somebody who could get this perspective of, oh, this company is inclusive. And then you work with them or you work for them and you start to see, oh, wow, y'all are missing the mark here and there. It can be like this moment of somber, like I thought this was this, but it was not. That's mm-hmm. why companies is really important to understand not only how to talk to talk, but how to walk to walk. And what does that actually look like when you get into the details Yes, that is so true. And I'm so glad you shared a story around that because I think so many times we have this conversation around diversity and inclusion. It's very high level. And we're like, you know, we're not about ticking boxes and some people are about ticking boxes. But then when we really get down into it, I think one of the most important things that you said was that there was heart behind it, but the actions were lacking. And it could be from a point of they didn't know where to start or they didn't actually realize that they didn't have the right things in place to be able to be inclusive and have that kind of culture. And I think, you know, it's great that you came to the table from that perspective and that the intentions were great. It's just, we needed to make some changes around it to make it happen. I love that. One more thing. Yeah. I was like to share is, it's okay to realize what we don't know. And yes. to say, hey, I don't know this. I need help. I need to reach out. Because a lot of times it's like this hamster wheel and we have this inner drive that wants to appear perfect and that we know it all. And at times that could cause us to miss chinks in the armor and cracks in the company where it goes back to what everybody was saying. We have that equality and diversity. I have 10, 11 people on my leadership team with different experiences, different perspectives who can show me my blind spots, which makes the company. And now we're walking the walk of equality because everybody opinion is valued just as much as the leader because we're all leaders. Love it. Adrian, you're, you're nodding your head. I want to hear from you. Absolutely. I love what you're saying um, because this speaks to um, the perspectives that we can have around the table. As we said, you need to have, um, you can have uh, somebody who's very passionate about a goal. Let's just say that a goal. Let's just say it's a diversity goal. I can be very passionate about women's um, viewpoints about incorporating um, women into the supply chain, into business, and what have you. But I'm not a woman, and so I need to have the perspective of a woman explain their version of events and their life and their lived experience at the same time as mine because we are living um experiences all at the same time but we're experiencing the same situation in different ways just like if you were to talk about how people are relating to a pandemic that we're going through one person might be on their own one person might be looking after somebody one person might be married one person might have had lost somebody one person's got children they're all experiencing at the same time and, and so 
um, it's important to have as many of those voices around. And I totally support what Julian's saying. Um, we need to sometimes acknowledge when we can't see somebody else's perspective and then probably outsource to that and get that perspective to come in. Even if it's not within your organization, you can, you can recruit it. You should staff your weaknesses to make you stronger. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think there's another really good point there as well, is that everybody is an individual, right? So whether, you know, there's a bunch of Caucasian females in a line, we all have different journeys that we've walked. We've all walked, you know, in different, various different shoes from where our lives have taken us. And I think we have to look at a person holistically, right? I think sometimes we lump everybody into gender or into religion or into skin tone or into, you know, ethnicity, whatever that looks like. We keep, you know, putting everybody in these bubbles, but everybody individually, no matter what that looks like, they identify differently, right? We had that conversation at the beginning of this before I hit record. How do you identify? It doesn't matter what that looks like for you, but it just matters that you, you want to let the audience know what that means to you, right? And I think we've got to get out of, you know, lumping everybody together and looking at each other as individuals. Just my thought. Julie, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I just wanted to say like that diver diversity needs to be defined, right? Because there's so many different levels of diversity. And as we were speaking about, you know, it could be by race, it could be by opportunity, it could be by experience. And we have to look at all of those layers because um, as Adrian was saying, if you just hire just a panel of women, right? Just you given a women's perspective, but at the same time, if you're, are you just checking off that first box? Yes. Okay. I've done my job. I've hired women. And then, you know, you know, you're, you're checking off the next box. Is it of color? But what does that give you as far as perspective goes? Right. And I think that underneath it all is the most important part, right? It's the, <laughs> it's the opinion. It's the, um, it is the experience and it's the mindset that you're bringing to the table. And it's not the superficial judging the book by the cover kind of decision-making that we need to do um, when it comes to diversity. Absolutely. And you bring up a really good point and it's a great segue into my next question. Okay. Because, you know, too often we're hearing about companies that are setting out targets, right? So we need an X percentage of people of color, X percentage of women, X percentage from the LGBTQIA plus community. And so does that actually challenge inequality at all? Does that make things more fair, but only within the existing societal structure? What are your thoughts on this? And this is a jam-packed question, right? Because companies are coming out all the time and saying, we are going to have this many people in this ethnicity or, or this skin tone or this gender. So what do we think about this? Is this making a difference or is this a publicity stunt? Who wants to start? Yeah, I'd love to jump in on that. <laughs> Just stir some bits up. I think that all of the above um, applies, if I'm really honest. I mean, if you, as, as Julie was saying, you need to define diversity to a second, certain extent, and then you need to audit it, if I'm really honest. You need to understand what that means in that organization and what your goals are in respect to that. And I, and I appreciate that 
um, there's a lot of organizations that will pick that up and say, we want to be inclusive, especially in a, a, a society where being not inclusive or not diverse can have an effect on how the public views that organization. Um, but again, you know, at, as, at the same time, you have to have diversity across all of the levels like you're talking about and all of the intersections. And that also includes the intersections of whether you're talking C-suite, whether you're talking um, department, whether you're talking um, education, uh, opportunity. And then, then you have to question who are the decision makers that actually have the influence to make the change. And, and if the decision makers are in an inclusive group as well, I can include as many people around my table and then still make the decision myself and continue to make that decision. And in theory, all I've done is just populated more seats around the table and tick the box that they're there. But whether or not that changes my decision-making, my, my yeah, uh, processes, yeah. what I do is a completely different thing. Um, you know, and I think that unless you audit what you're doing and you're intentional about your action, um, it won't change. Just having the people in the room doesn't make any difference. I can say I can have a very diverse, I'll be very blunt, very diverse workforce. And my diverse workforce is one gender, uh, one race in C-suite, and every multicultural in every other um, lower term jobs, if we call it that, uh, that don't have any impact on the organization's actual work. But I could have, I could have diverse security, diverse catering, which is what happens in, what, uh, in, in organizations, in reality. This is what happens. Um, I can have diverse people recruiting, but where are they recruiting to? Who are the decision makers? Um, and then if we talk about supply chain, a passion of mine is that I can, we can be as diverse as we want. But until we start awarding contracts and actual pieces of work to a diverse group of people, what are we saying? You know, it has to be audited, has to be intentional, or it is what we spoke about before, a tick in the box. Yeah. Well, and that goes into a whole nother conversation about how organizations are working working to change policies so that they can make room for small business. And most supplier diversity programs are around working with small business. And there are a lot of changes that need to be made there. But what I liked what you said also is around the intention. So it's one thing to have it visible. And it's one thing to shout it from the rooftops. It's a whole other to for them to have an impact on decision making and the future of the company itself for it to actually make a difference and make a change into the future of that company. Julie, you're, you're nodding your head. Did you want to jump in? Yeah, I'm in total agreement. Cause of course, you know, being many of us of color on this panel, I think we, we may have, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but I know for myself, you know, you know, being looked at as Asian um, and a female, um, sure, I can be hired for those two uh, criteria, but what position did you put me in? Did you hide me in a corner and then I'm muted, even the fact that I've joined the company, or did you put me in a position where I can make influence and have a seat at the table um, and, and lead others, like have that leadership um, to guide 
with the experience, with my opinion, uh, whether it be right or wrong, to be heard. Yeah. Awesome. Sabrina? I, yeah, I would, I would love to add to that aspect of practicing it. And, you know, we look at schools, you know, so funny that when we do work, we have to study it and it's new material and it's information we didn't understand before. And a lot of people have a hard time um, transferring that into the workforce of saying, I have to practice what diversity is. I have to continue to learn. I mean, on our jobs, we're pushed to say, you have to continue to learn. They put you through training. They want you to go to classes. Um, you know, it's almost, you know, how you get your raise. Did you continue to put yourself out there? That is the accountability factor for diversity and inclusion and this topic in general is to say, yeah, we have to practice this just how we practice anything else. And the hard part about it is it's when you define these things, just like, you know, we're not doing, um, you know, education, you know, 50 years ago, things have changed. Those those definitions to these words are going to move. They're going to be different. Um, they're not going to always hold the same meaning. So when you're going to, when you're talking about what is this? Oh, I don't understand. Today it's something else. Tomorrow it's something else. It's to say, okay, I have to actively learn about this. I have to actively take into account all the way up from the C-suite down that um, I have to learn about this and immerse myself in it. So you don't have someone in the corner that feels unheard because you know you checked a box and that box was right five years ago and that box yeah. isn't right anymore. And the why, the why yeah. behind those decisions. So Julian, I wanna send this question over to you because diversity focuses heavily on certain groups, right? Ethnicity, gender, sexuality, class. And I mean, I hesitate to put disability in there because disability, I don't think gets enough of a seat at the table. Um, but there's a lot of other ways that we're diverse, right? There's religion, there's age, there's occupation, politics, and so on. Um, but we don't really represent those categories, right? We really just represent the ones that we're focused on heavily. So is modern diversity a way of sort of cherry picking that in a shift from equality to diversity? Are certain groups being sidelined or forgotten? Yes, and I, I operate from an idea of optimism and I feel like at the heart of every good business is wanting to do right by not only their customers, but their employees. And so in my experiences of working with businesses, I have seen, I would say over 90% of the time that they alienate different groups of people by accident. And it's because it's the intrinsic disabilities, the things, the invisible, so not even the invisible characteristics of diversity. You know, we can see skin color, we can see race, and people can wear clothes to signify their social economic status. But you can't see single mom. Right. You can't see somebody who is struggling. And so, you know, I had a company, a, a business owner come to me and said, hey, I cannot get all my employees on the same page to interact outside of work. And so I asked him, well, let me see a calendar of when are you putting out activities? And so he was putting out activities Friday nights, which on the surface looks like that's great. But for some people of certain religions, Friday nights is sacred. And mm -hmm. so I think another word that comes up that needs to be addressed as we move forward is the word of inconvenience. If we're going to be equality and everybody's going to enjoy this space that we're going to have, well, everybody has to give up a little bit of something, whether that's the convenience, whether that's being comfortable. 
maybe on lunchtime on Fridays, we need to go try different restaurants that maybe the majority doesn't like. And so when we could look at it from that perspective, then you start to really participate in the word equality by incorporating these values and cultures that are so important to other people that you might not hold of your own. But in essence, that's how we learn. If I could take on the importance of your religion and respect it, just as I respect mine, we can reach a place of authenticity, which is going to increase the relationship and a safe environment for business. Yeah, I like what you said around everybody needs to be slightly inconvenienced. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to let that sit for a second, because that is truly very powerful, right? There's way too many times we're not going to get to the real truth about diversity and inclusion if we're all going to be comfortable 100% of the time or we're all going to be convenient or convenienced 100% of the time and so you bring up an amazing point because if we are going to make this work and we are going to do this everybody's got to get uncomfortable and everybody's got to get inconvenienced and we're not saying you know, 100% all the time. We're seeing 5% here and there to be able to give up some of that for yourself to somebody else. Amazing. Anybody else want to chime in on that before I get into the the next segment? I, I do want to chime in. I think exactly what you're saying. I think some of the resistance that people have about um, inclusion and diversity is the fact that it means that they're going to be uncomfortable or their status quo is going to have to change or um, the way that they've always done things is going to have to change. And that challenge um, sparks fear. And, you know, people are already afraid of change anyway. Yeah. Um, so those are the things that you have to overcome. Unfortunately, you cannot appease everybody and especially people that are in power because invariably nobody wants to give up power. People don't want to go backwards in their decision-making and people don't want to go backwards in any privilege that they have, you know, um, regardless of what it's uh, based upon. Um, But as you said, uh, you know, Julian, very well said, you know, we have to get used to that kind of being uncomfortable and being inclusive. That's what it means. And so um, being inclusive doesn't necessarily mean it's fair or that um, being inclusive doesn't necessarily mean that it makes sense to all of us or that you agree with all of these um, things that are happening um, because you might not ever understand it and you might you might not ever see it to try and explain to uh, somebody that doesn't have a child what it's like to be a parent some lessons they won't learn until they have children right and they just just are not given that perspective until you know or somebody that um uh somebody that i don't know there's you name it you name an intersection you choose it <laughs> these are all happening at the same time and so just like what julian was saying you know to the to the worker that has to go home and take care of three or four children and maybe a parent and maybe you know uh, are in a relationship or not in a relationship and what have you and then for you to ask them to give up that time when it's all dependent on them um, compared to somebody that um, goes out and has a bit more opportunity just because of their lifestyle and what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, it's not necessarily seen as fair. Mm-hmm. 
It's not the same question that you're asking each individual, even though you use the same words. Yeah, exactly. And I would challenge you on one thing that you said, and I'm not challenging you. I'm challenging everybody in the audience is when you said that people don't like change. Well, the amount of change that we've all been through in the last <laughs> year, I would hope that nobody can use that as an excuse anymore, because we all know from the last year that we're quite resilient I would, I would assume, you know, with, with the change that has come at us in the last year. And so hopefully moving forward, can't really use, you know, change as, you know, something that we are necessarily uncomfortable with anymore. So the next part of this conversation, I was recently watching a show and they talked about the word racist and racism. And there was a group discussion and nobody really had a clear view of what that word or what those words actually mean. And so I wanted to talk about this today because I think it's super, super important in the climate that we're in right now around these words and what they mean to individual people because they mean different things to different people. And until we get on the same page about what that means, we can't really make impactful change. So my first question to all of you is, what do you feel the word racist means? Or maybe racism? You can take one of the two. And uh, Sabrina, you want to start? I will start. I, to me, racist and racism is the system that allows a racial group already in power to retain power. So what that means is using a power to create preferential access to survival rights and resources like housing, education, voting, citizenship, food, health, legal protection. So it's just using a system to give access while restricting and oppressing another group of people. And you can take an example of Amy Cooper from, from Central Park um, if that ordeal had happened and she had just went home and said, all right, well, I didn't like that guy. I thought he was totally nuts. Um, that would be, you know, prejudiced. And she's saying, I hate that black guy. What made it racist and race and racism, you know, playing out was the fact that she said, I'm going to call the system and say, Hey, I'm going to get you in trouble because I, I have a, I'm aware that the system works against you. So that is what made that transaction mm. that, that happened was racist because it's like, I know I'm very aware of this system that works against you. So I think that the it's a very interchangeable word and people can get lost in it. It's definitely that, power dynamic. That is very, very powerful. And we're going to get into white privilege a little bit later on in this discussion, because I think that that's a very important topic as well. Um, Julian or Adrian? Julian, do you want to jump in there? What's does racist or racism mean to you? Yeah, piggybacking off what Sabrina so eloquently said, racism and going back to what you said as well, is the collective. It's the, if I take 20 white women or 20 Asian or 20 black people and line them up and say, this is all of y'all, you know, racism goes hand in hand with stereotypes. You know, if I have one bad experience with one white man, that does not give me the liberty or the freedom to go say all white men are like this. Mm -hmm. And stereotyping leads and breeds racism. 
Hmm. I think as a as a society and just as people in general, we could get to treating everybody off of their own individual merit, off of their accountability and off their behaviors, then the chance for racism to exist minimizes because I'm treating everybody as an individual. Mm, I love that. And I, I never really thought about it that way, but you're completely right about stereotypes leading into racism. Julie, what do you think? Yeah, that was the, the core of my thought about racism and race uh, and and being racist is you are going off those stereotypes because you've either from society or whatever information you've collected on that um, group that you've segregated in your mind is you've painted them with a picture and of course that's the stereotypes go with it. So within my definition, I know you gave us the the questions kind of ahead of time. So my prepared answer really was is like. Um, when someone is is diminishing or disrespects someone else, um, whether it's verbally or non-verbally, um, based on their perceived, um, based on actually their actual skin color or their culture, or even I was thinking their perceived culture, because that's where the stereotypes come in. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know anyone well enough to be able to paint that picture, whether it's an individual, whether it's a group, but it's that perceived culture that we place. And that's where the, the racism I believe breeds from. Mm. And, to, and just to ask, and just yeah. add, to piggyback on what you said, we would have to ask ourselves as companies and businesses and just as just basic people in society, if I am having no interaction with a particular group, or a particular people who identify as various characteristics that define humans. Where are my values and beliefs about these people stemming from? You know, is it what society telling me? Is it the TV shows I'm watching? Is it the narrative perceptions that have been going on historically throughout society? And so we have to question how am I developing my beliefs about other people if they're coming through no personal interactions? Yeah, true, Adrian. I've got to. I love this question. I don't think. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I don't think you can answer this question without going back to the beginning. And I always ask this question: um, When was race invented? Because if you look at when race was invented, it's a modern concept, and it's an invented concept that is not real. Huh. And it was. And it was invented. We weren't referred to by race for the majority of our history. Um, it was only as a very, very, very modern concept that we're talking about race here. Um, even the terms that we use, black or African or Asian, those are very, very modern terms. We were always referred to before by nationality and by where we came from. The invention of race in, in itself was designed as a system to segregate people and to um, and also to put a set of people on top of um, another set of people. And so, you know, anybody interpreting or having this conversation has to start with when was race invented? If you look it up, you'll find that there were architects of these words that we use to describe race. And there was a reason for that. And, you know, so you need to look at their writings and when these these words came into our uh, modern nomenclature, our modern conversation, our modern um, language. It's, 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 it's an invention, you know, it's, it, it's, an, it's an invention. We weren't referred to by, by that, and you know. If, by who? Okay, so I'll give you four. There was, 
there's four architects of what you call race theory that we talk about now. Um, if you look at um, Charles Darwin, if you look at, um, let me get their names for you, um, Charles Seglerman, Francis Galton, and definitely um, Johann Frederick Blumenbach. Those are the four people that came up with the terms that we talk about now about race. And, and, it, and they were anthropologists, they were um, uh, commentators of the time, they were people that were bringing into um, our history books and um, they were the learned scholars of the time. And when they invented race, uh, they, I'll give you how, how, how binary it was. Um, um, Francis um, Blumenbach, he actually did, was an anthropologist and he looked at these different skull shapes um, of the different racial groups that we call racial groups at the moment. And then based upon those, he made the assumptions in regards to uh, the uh, intelligence, the understanding, the characteristics of people that are associated, associated with those, those skull types. So I encourage you, before you have this conversation, yes, this is, this is documented. I just encourage you to go and have a look. Race is an invented concept. We weren't, we, uh, you know, and, and, and then it's obviously, it has obviously, what's the word? Evolved. Um, evolved. But going back to what Julian said, you know, you have to question, where has your concept of race come from? Yeah. When were you introduced to race? From yourself as well, from everybody around the table. When were you introduced to a theory around race? Where did that come from? What is it based on? Where are those thoughts coming from? Where is the evidence that you have presented? And that is the basis of racism. You gotta because, love having a historian on the show. Yeah, <laughs> that is the basis. This is good. Um, this this is I the this it. is the basis. This is the basis of racism. And because we haven't asked ourselves these simple questions, um, we can't see the entomology of where it's come from. Where where is this thought? Where is this desire? And then also, when you look at when it was raised, why was it created? Yeah. That's another reason why you have to ask as well. And then. And then who benefits from this creation? Right. And these, you know, and then you talk about um, where this thought propagates through, what systems are based upon it, what systems are um, created as a result of it, who benefits from it. And that's what we would call racism mm. from my point, because it's based on a belief system and it's based on a systemic power, um, decision-making and uh, uh, and uh, the opportunity to use um, that information in a certain way. And you choose any racial group that you want, um, that's how it's been used. And that, I mean, we can talk about it from, from a UK point of view, you know, that has been systemic around um, Commonwealth. We have this word which we use, Commonwealth, yeah? And if you look at where um, one small island, um, UK, has gone out, you know, how is it possible that they could have had so much control over um, a third of the world, mm -hmm. you know? And then, yeah. so you have these questions around, and this is then propagated out across all these different um, um, racial groups and education groups, and then it becomes into our system. And then these are the thoughts that are propagated throughout generations. Mm -hmm. And these are the systems which define the systemic racism as opposed to just one action which could be deemed as racist or... Mm -hmm one uh one feeling that somebody has towards any kind of racial group right. it's on purpose 
it's designed and it wasn't always like that. Hmm. We need to look at the origins. Julian, I know you're itching to jump in here. Yeah, and just to give his perspective, a broader perspective, stereotyping inherently is not bad. Like it's human nature. Going back to the beginning of time, it was used to help us survive. You cavemen, we we label plants. Hey, this plant is poisonous. Any plant that like this is poisonous. We label food. Hey, that's fire. You know, that's good. It could be used like this. And so as society evolved, as humans became smarter, then we understood how to use powers and systems at B to individual benefit, which marginalize and minimize other cultures and societies. But we have to agree and acknowledge that at its very core, stereotyping is a way that we stay safe from danger. But it's when we elevate it and weaponize it that it becomes an issue and permeates throughout our businesses, which is not good for relationships and workplaces. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And and what Adrian said about who does it benefit? That was a big question that we talked about in episode five on the BLM movement, right? The Black Lives Matter movement. Who does it all benefit? And it's such a huge question when we're talking about this. So my next question is a bit controversial, um, but it's something that I hear comes a lot, comes up a lot when people start taking sides in the racism debate. Do you think that white people can experience racism? Because what we're talking about here is that it doesn't necessarily have to do with the color of your skin, but it's about the society that we all live within, right? Or yeah, right? And so can white people experience racism or are they the ones that are the most racist? The short answer to that, um, I would think is no, because I believe that white people can experience prejudice. And prejudice is just when a person is negatively prejudges someone or a group without getting their reason or their thoughts, without knowing their reasons or their thoughts behind their actions. Okay. I would say that is, you know, racism is because it's di- it's rooted in a dynamic of power. And we look at the origins, at least in America, it's, you know, white people in America have been the, have held those keys in the majority in those various spaces. And we can look at these rules and laws from the beginning of time. And I think that they have been rooted in systemic power. And I, I would say just looking back on the cotton industry, um, back then the cotton industry amassed $200 million. And that today would have, you know, been $5 billion. And that kind of trickles down to generational wealth. So we're talking about systems in place from these, from a white America that has had an abundance, an abundance and like wealth we cannot even think of has trickled down. And so when we're talking about, can someone be, racist to you. I can have a prejudice towards you. I can be, I can feel some type of way about you, but there is no Sam Walton in my community. There is no, there's no, you know, Jeff Bezos in my community that is just amassing billions of, you know, dollars of wealth that can hold those keys to say, I can completely shut you out. So if you don't like me and you don't want to talk to me, you can say, okay, well, I just don't like her. But there's some cases and some points where people say, well, I can't afford to lose that aspect. Mm -hmm. I can't afford to say, you know, this made me feel some type of way. I can't do that. Where I think that there's other things that have been in place where it's like, you know what? She may feel some type of way, but I have so much more. So the short answer is no. 
and then the long answers. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and I like how you led with prejudice versus racism. Yeah. Because there's obviously a difference, and, and that's why we're talking about this today, to really put it out there so people understand the difference, because I think sometimes they get confused. Mm -hmm. Julie? Sabrina, you brought up such an interesting point, because, um, you know, I didn't think of it that way. You know, my first answer to that would have been um, yes, because it just you know, by logic, yeah, be, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's by population, by logic, you would think that, yes, there would be racism towards, you know, white people. And from my travel, from my experiences there, um, you know, to places where it's way more homogenous by ethnicity, mm -hmm. I've never seen direct racism, but of course the possibility is there. You know, I've traveled with friends from various places in the world, whether Europe or North America, um, being of Caucasian descent, but they were always welcome with, uh, you know, open arms to say, you know, come and experience my culture yeah. um, locally. But there was never, um, you know, again, that push to say, you know, you don't belong here. You come from a Western culture, a Western um, uh, color mm -hmm. um, identification. Yeah. It was never, that was never the case. But I think at the bottom of it, in what you brought up, is the money, is the power and the money. And that's what drives the racism. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Julian or Adrian, you want to jump in before we get into our next segment? Yeah. And I would definitely like to bring that to a real life example that we all face talking about the power and the money. So I would ask everybody, viewers, just think right now about the federal holidays in America that we get off, okay? You know, you go to work, these are paid time off days, et cetera. But think about how many days that are important to other cultures that are not a holiday. Now, of course, if we was to make every holiday and every culture holiday, we wouldn't be working at all. But I'm saying- <laughs> That would be okay. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but just from the, the framework or the idea of think about, it, we said, hey, you know what? Let's say we could take one day from different religions, et cetera, and just make that an off day to give that religion or that culture the same respect as we celebrate our holidays. But that is a systemic issue. And so there, you know, every owner or business could say, hey, you know, we didn't create that. That's just what it is. However, each business possibly might have the power to change that or implement changing within their company. Mm. And so talking about the, the power and the money and the system and racism is bigger than the individual. So yeah. the individual racism has the system that's supporting it. So the, the solution to that then, let me just hear me out. Would it be where you take a holiday that doesn't protect potentially have anything to do with a particular individual, but they have another holiday at another time of the year. And so you would give them the opportunity to maybe switch them out. Yeah. Hmm. All right. I like that. I like that. And I like that we're, we're, we're giving solutions. We are going to get to solutions near the end after this very important discussion. Adrian, do you want to jump in before I change yeah. everything into white privilege? <laughs> I'll lead into your white privilege conversation then. With this uh, this uh, response, um, I, I normally have this conversation with friends and family, and um, and my response is this: um, Can men experience sexism? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you can probably agree. You can probably say, but the extent at which we experience it compared to the system that's set up for females is going to be completely different. Yeah, and it's probably based upon. Um, it's probably based upon. Well, it is. It's, system, it's systemic power. Yeah, and 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 the history around um, um, sexism compared sexism for women compared to sexism for men is a complete different comparison and yeah. is more than likely based around inconveniences that men have had as a result of FEMA as opposed to real what we call systemic sex sexism mm -hmm. and um and that conversation that people say about um, racism um leads into this as well as a comparator because what racism might mean to yourself and your bar barometer that you might measure it compared to what it means to me is a completely different thing. There's a whole history that goes behind it. Um, my entire family up until this point has been and is always um, under a subjugation of um, uh, or a legacy of what racism is. And I don't have that power, um, inverted commas, to... Um, appropriate the same measure out to whoever's done it to me. So for example, my name is Adrian Beton, and I got my name because a man from UK um, took fam my family from Africa and then enslaved them in the West Indies in Jamaica up until this, you know, and, um, and that's how I got my name. So when you say to me about racism and privilege and what have you, when, I, when somebody calls my name, they're also talking about the people that have enslaved me and my family and that area. And that goes up until this day, you know, and I can go back to the area in, uh, in the West Indies where we were enslaved and there's even a plantation, which we own now, but there's even a plantation which holds that name. And the only thing that's, that joins me together um, is that family name, even though that some of my family might have come from different parts of Africa or people that were in, enslaved from that I'm, I'm just using as this as an example but the history that's associated to a term racism means different things to different people it does yeah and has an impact on that and so for me how could i and and this relates to my family and so many families across the west indies all across um the americas as well um where have i got the opportunity to display that form of systemic power based upon um, an ideal where would i ever have that inverted commas opportunity to do something that would be comparable that you could say oh um this is this is racist which you're doing the system around it that enables that power the thinking the belief system and the opportunity and the action behind it over generations is completely different to even Central Park, <laughs> Central Park, uh, you know, conversations there. I mean, it's such a small thing compared to, you know, for some people to say it's prejudice, what we call prejudice or white power or white privilege, um, all of these different things. You're talking about instances as opposed to somebody's um, part of somebody's legacy, not entire right. part of somebody's legacy. What it means to me, what the conversation they have to me is completely different. Just like, as I said, that I started, you know, me saying sexism means something completely different to females that have had, or women that have had um, sexism, s society, corporation, aspiration, 
um, beliefs about what their abilities can do and can do. What that says to you compared to what that says to me is two different things. It's, you know, we have to be equitable. And this comes back to the beginning of our conversation about having those voices around the table. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I think when we think about the word racist, from a variety of different standpoints, whether you're Caucasian, whether you're Asian, whether you're black, whether you're a person of color, mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think it means different things, but I think at the same time, what Sabrina said, and I bring it back to the very beginning is prejudice and racism are two very different words, but can be used very interchangeably. Yeah. And I think we really need to check ourselves before we say the word racist as to whether it's prejudiced or whether it actually is racist, because too many times we are using the wrong words and they're hateful words and they're powerful words and they make an impact whether positively or negatively. And that makes the difference between one confrontation and another. And so just, just something to think about as we move forward. And I think what you said there as well, you can talk about intent there's an intent of how you use prejudice and how you use um, the intent around your heart around it, consciously or subconsciously, yeah. can actually um, uh, help define whether or not something was a racist action. But whether or not you know it or you intended it or not does not change the fact that it is or is not racist. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about white privilege. What do you think white privilege is? What does it mean? And does it exist? This is a loaded question. I know, and not everybody's going to agree on it, but it's okay because the whole point of these conversations is for us to share our diverse perspectives on what that means to us and that we do get uncomfortable in these conversations because the only way we're going to make an impact is by having these conversations and sharing our perspectives. So who wants to start that one? Sabrina, do you want to start that one again? I'll dive right in. <laughs> so um, white privilege um, just means that your race does not put you at a disadvantage in society. And I think people get so wrapped up in the, the polarity of this word. And it's not inherently good and it's not inherently evil. It's just so much is coming to an agreement of what it is and it does yeah. exist it's just saying okay you know i was born white there's you know society i'm not at a disadvantage but people can realize you know you don't have to say oh i'm, I'm an evil person this is a, that's an opportunity to say this comes with a privilege and privilege comes with resources and it's to say that okay um, what can I do with that? So, you know, like Adrian was saying, it's the intent. Is, is white privilege bad when you say, yes, I, you know, I'm white and, you know, I don't care about anybody else and this is built for me. Yeah, that's inherently toxic, yes. Is it, yes, I'm afforded these privileges, I want to do what I can, like you are, Sarah, right now, opening up this platform to change the narrative, then I would say, yes, you're using that white privilege for something that's so good. And I couldn't imagine any other time to be like, this is great. So, I mean, it's just about what we do and how we feel about it and just realize, are we polarizing something? Are we making this 
more than what it is? Um, are we defining what it is? And that's so hard right now with social media because, you know, the way algorithms are set up, it's supposed to make you, you know, feel charged. It's supposed to make you feel angry when these are just words. Yeah, it's true. Words that we have to talk, work through, see what they mean and keep it pushing to find solutions. And I think it's interesting because a lot that comes around white privilege or, or from my perspective is that it's negative. But what you're saying is it's not negative, but it comes with a variety of different things that we could be doing in a variety of different ways to elevate the conversation and to impact change for the future. Exactly. And so we have to better understand our responsibility and what comes with those words. And not that it's negative, because a lot of times you also hear like white guilt, yes. right? I'm, I'm guilty for, for the color of my skin. That's not okay either. We don't right. want people to be feeling bad about themselves, but we do right. want to utilize our privilege or resources. Whatever that word resonates with you, use it. Use it. You don't right. have to go with what everybody else is saying. But if you're use, use, utilizing the resources and what you were born with to help impact the change, I think that's where the difference is made. And you're right. They are just words. And I think that the, the problem with coming to to terms with it is people think, well, if I admit to this, do, do now I have to be an activist? Do I have to change my life? And do I have to say things I don't mean to people? You know, do I have to post things that I might not inherently understand? And it's none of that. It's saying that today I'm going to take this one step at a time. If I see something, I'm going to say something. If I have something you know, if I can help somebody or I can see something that I have the ability to do, it's to do those things. I think it becomes a problem when you say, I have this and I'm going to not share it. I'm going to close it off for just, you know, my people because you don't deserve to be here. I think that's where, you know, you have to draw the line, but yes. Well, I think you need to be easy on yourself too, right? I, I think that, you know, you do have a responsibility, but at the other, at the, at the same time, people are human and mm -hmm. there are going to be days where you feel like you can help. And there are going to be days that you feel like you can't help. And it's the days that you feel like you can help that you, you need to help. And whatever that looks like though, because something small to me could be something big to Julian and something right. big to Adrian could be something small to me. Right. And so I think we just need to make an, make, make an impact where we can make an impact when we can make an impact and stop. I, I think part of there, there's a lot of, I think perceived judgment. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessarily true, but there's perceived judgment where there's, there feels like a lot of pressure mm -hmm. and you're not sure whether you're doing the right or the wrong thing. And that really puts people into boxes and doesn't help the situation. Anybody else? <laughs> yeah, and I would like to add, the way Sabrina just said that made me think about this in a way that I, have, that I have not thought about this before. And even what you just shared with us, Sarah. And so I think, you know, going beyond white privilege, we could remove the word white and insert the word power. Okay. Power privilege. And what I mean by that is everybody on different levels experience privilege in different aspects of their life. Now, my privilege might not be as 
the same as somebody else's, but I still have that. And I still can't control what I do with the platform. And one, another example of this is I can't remember where it was these, it was these workers who had disabilities at a company and they was having a hard time reaching management, like corporate offices to get some things changed. Well, I know that's who I operate with on a daily. And so I told these workers who were not my clients working for companies who I necessarily did not have contracts with. And it was like, Julian, can you please talk to somebody about this? Now they have been trying to get some things changed for a month, emailing, phone calls, getting sent off to answer machines and we'll call you back and kind of take your numbers. I made one phone call and within a week, changes were getting made. And so in that instance, I was able to use my privilege of access to business owners, my educational privilege of being a doctoral candidate and people putting a perceived judgment on that and elevate somebody else who was just getting cast off as just a worker who's just making, who's just another cog on the wheel. And I was able to use that platform to highlight them and empower them. And so that's the biggest thing with the platforms that we have. It's not about helping people because I can help you one time, but that problem may come up again in a week. How can I use my platform to empower you? Yeah. And once I start empowering you, you can then use your platform to empower somebody else. Mm -hmm. Wow. So powerful. I love this. I could, we could talk about this all day. <laughs> Julie or Adrian, do you want to jump in? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Like going off of that, it takes like Julian's comment there about kind of assisting somebody else who may not be in the position to speak for themselves or they're not being listened to, but using your own position to bring that forward to help them out. I've definitely had that experience and I'm going to kind of try and I'm almost even trying to flip it on its head right now because I'm a, because of Canadian born Chinese, there's definitely white privilege. Um, I never even knew that label until more like recently, but I have experienced it, right? Um, from myself and even as I was saying um, with uh, Julian's example there at work, I already have the label of Canadian. That even in itself has given me an opportunity within North America, right? And working with immigrants right alongside me at work who have come from another country with a degree that's way higher than mine, like an astrophysicist, but they're working in a manufacturing line. But someone may not want to listen to them, but just given the fact that stereotypically, someone's looked at me and said, wow, you're Canadian. Even though you look Chinese and Asian, you have native speaking English, I'm gonna listen to you. And I've used that to my, the opportunity to give a voice to those that work alongside me. And maybe by title, they work, I hate to say it, beneath me on the organizational chart, but that's where I've leveraged that for other people and being able to stand up and give them that equal opportunity. So everybody has privilege is what we're, what we're really saying. Yeah. And too often we hear it too much as maybe white privilege and maybe we need to change the narrative around the conversation to be more about your individual and respective privilege and how are you using that to empower others and maybe turn it into a positive rather than a negative and i right. love 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 that adrian final words on this one yeah i um i'll present another alternative uh, view on that 
I think that, um, yes, I do believe that white privilege exists just like masculine privilege exists. Um, and there is a responsibility of those who have privilege, as Julian says, not only to um, forge the way forward for the future and give opportunity, but you have to dismantle the things of the past because privilege sets up certain organizations and systems um, over other ones. And it, it means that your um, sometimes privilege um, means that your privilege is as a result of somebody else's subjugation. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be you have to be deliberate about dismantling past and also moving into future, regardless of whatever terms that you use. Um, and that but that means that you have to audit the privilege, as we said in the beginning. So as I said, you know, I'm very passionate about trying to get a more diverse workforce. But if, unless I made intention around trying to make sure that we know that we've got more women-led organizations in um in our um being awarded work or in our c-suite or in those types of things unless i audited that and made an actual deliberate action towards that um you're not addressing or you're not using your privilege in the best way that you can and so i don't think it's as simple as saying we can put let's just think about it positively it isn't necessarily that because it's going to have to have some effect which dismantle somebody's power position and that speaks back to what we were talking about the uncomfortability mm -hmm. um so um i absolutely agree that you know we have to, yeah with great power comes great responsibility you can choose any film to take that from if you want <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is a very true statement but um until you audit it and you see where it lies you can't adjust it so, uh, you know, you can't, um, as I said before, if the entire C-suite is only men, until you audit, it's very happy. I can say I can audit it, but until I do something about it, mm -hmm. it's not going to make any difference. And I was, as, as I was talking before about, you know, how, how somebody's name or somebody's thing could, the, the effects of that, like, for example, practical things that people do, um, like you, you've heard the story about when people submit um, CVs or uh, with two different names, but exactly the same resume, and you see the outcome that's different. Yeah. Now, an actual change to that would be that you don't have any name on there. That might start the process, or you you kind of um, separate those the ability of of somebody and an organisation to use their privilege in one way or another. Right. you know and so you know I, I i have privilege in the way that i might have an english accent and some people might not know my background or whatever and so might afford certain privileges to me as a result of that or just even optimism to, towards some of the things that i say or do or what i do mm -hmm. but that privilege has to be then extended to people that don't sound like me that don't have my name that don't have I think, and that is an action that you have to use so that you can have more seats around the table. And um, and yes, um, there is privilege and guilt associated to it, and there should be, because you know there is um, just just because I don't know or I haven't met or I haven't experienced um, people that are suffering because of my privilege, and there will be. 
doesn't mean that what my actions haven't contributed to it. My ignorance does not mean that um, that hasn't had an effect on a people group. Yeah. And so my actions should, um, I should, the responsibility I have, even once I've been brought aware, is to believe them and then try and dismantle that as well as enable the future. I, I don't think you can separate history and the part in the future. You, you won't have, you won't learn from the lessons of the past unless you start to put action into the future. I know it's a bit heavy, but that's, uh, that's how I feel. I think we cannot separate it because of how people feel good or bad as a result of it. It's um, true. It's, it's reality. True. This well, is people's lives. And everybody's got choices is yeah. what is basically what you're saying. And if that choice leads to guilt or not to guilt, I mean, versus ignorance, I mean, that's all everybody's choices. Julian? And I would like to say, I really commend you, Sarah, and take on this challenge and bring in this topic to the forefront. Mm. And I would just like to add that what we're talking about, it's not easy. It's not easy to give up privilege because if we could just bring this to the business world and we're talking about equality, well, if I'm right. leveling the playing field, I am leveling the competition. And so we talk about this idea of we want to get the biggest revenue, the, the, the profits and lower these expenses. Well, if I'm creating opportunities for other people, maybe these people in business might go get contracts I've been getting for the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and so it's not easy. And so this is not something that you make up in your mind one day and you're doing it the next. This is something you wrestle with. This is something you go to bed and it makes you uncomfortable because you are literally giving up an advantage, if you will. We could substitute the word privilege with advantage. What advantages do you have in businesses Do maybe till you have more resources that maybe a small minority business does not have? Right. And what does it take in your heart to possibly give up revenue mm -hmm. to another business and be okay with that at night? Absolutely right. That's so true. Wow. Right. I love these discussions. This is why I have blended. This is why we have these conversations. So we've got probably about 15 minutes because that'll take us to the hour and a half mark. Um, so I want to talk about practical change because we've talked conceptually about some, some big, very big issues. We've talked about some of the change that can be made from these conversations. I think we're going to change people's mindsets as well through what we've been able to to, to talk about, but real life and real impacts. Each one of you, what is something that's practical that people can do? One thing from each one of you that everybody can do taking, I'll ask you for your takeaways from the conversation after this one, but I want some practical solutions of what you would implore the audience that's listening to this on maybe one action item that they can they can do to to make some meaningful impactful change. Julie, I'll start with you on this one. I think that it's quite actionable for everyone to do some, you know, self-study, whether it be talking to someone um, or research online. We have all this access to so many different um, cultures. Uh, I won't even say ethnicities, but cultures, because it doesn't mean that just because of the way I look means that's the way I grew up, um, because that mistake happens a lot for me. Um, just because I'm Asian does not mean that I was brought up completely on Asian culture. So I think it's so important for people to research um, just by asking questions. And that's how you change your mind about 
um, people and ethnicities and the world. It's just ask questions and be curious and come from a genuine place when you ask those questions. So when in episode one, I asked Matthew, who was on the show about whether I could ask him at any point in time, how he identifies. And when we started that conversation, he said, well, it depends on the time. It depends on the day. It depends what we're doing. And I, and we ended up having the conversation. And at the end he said, you know what, just ask me. So is that true for this group as well? Is asking you how you identify or how, how, what your upbringing is? What are those questions that we could be asking, Julie? I think if you're not comfortable asking somebody about their ethnicity, you could go about it a roundabout way, just even starting out with what is it that you do, your job? You know, do you have a family that you live with? You know, very simple one-on-one -on -one questions just to get to know the person, just like you would if you went on a date, <laughs> right? You're, you're not going to dive super deep on the first question, but you got to start somewhere, right? To start where you're comfortable. Yeah. All right. Adrian, what's your, what's your one practical change and how do you feel about a question being asked about your identity or your background? So I'll answer the last one first. Okay. <laughs> I don't mind anybody asking me about my um, identity and background. I get it all the time. So, um, and I'm fine. But that's just me. And I appreciate that some people don't, mm -hmm. don't like those questions because it has different connotations to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. And, and especially if it's somebody who's a friend and smiles and all of these things like that, like, like yourself. So, um, you know, if somebody wants to ask, I'm much more open to having that conversation. Um, my advice to do it uh, for the, everybody listening, especially on the supply chain, um, is that we have to be deliberate about our actions if you want to see change. Um, and I believe that we have to be deliberate, um, especially supply chain. I'm coming from a procurement background and supply chain. We have to be very deliberate about giving everybody the opportunity to the opportunities, as right. I said before, yeah? And so that means the way I go about it for one people group or intersection of diversity is going to be different for another people group and different intersection. Mm -hmm. And But we have to be deliberate about it. It won't, I don't believe it will change until we change um, some people's financial bottom line and until the money is involved in it as well. And if I want to see equity, um, just like Julian, I want everybody to get a piece of the of the pie. I want everybody to have an opportunity, regardless of whatever intersection label you use. If it's um, you know, if we haven't got um, um, businesses that are uh, from people that are disabled led, if we call it that, businesses, or, or uh, it, then I have a I have an issue with that. Why is that? Are we not giving them the opportunity? If it's because of age. Why is that? Is it because we're not giving them the same opportunity? Is it because of race? Is it because of religion? Is it whichever intersection you want to use, we have to be deliberate about making sure people can have that opportunity around that table. Put the chair around it for them and don't feel comfortable if when you look around the room or when you sign that document, it's only going to one demographic. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk about ageism at the end of the year, but that's definitely something that has been coming up more and more. Um, and it's an important topic. Julian, what's one thing 
that's practical that people can implement to make the most impact. And how do you feel about being asked about how you identify? So the one thing that's practical, I get asked this question all the time from business owners and C-suite people about being practical changes for people with disabilities. And this question is super similar to similar answer. I believe in starting with what you have first. So before you move outwards, start with the employees and the people in the company now. And for this conversation, for this topic, diversity, inclusion, equality, I would challenge every business owner or every person in the C-suite who has a position of power to implement change in the company that's listening right now, I would challenge you to over the next three, four, five, six months, bring in each employee and ask them, hey, and is this company doing enough to where you feel heard, to where you feel that your beliefs are valued, that your culture is celebrated? And if not, what is one thing that we can change starting next week to implement your culture, to make you feel valued? And I like that solution because that requires no meetings about a budget. That requires nothing regarding we have to vote on this. That can be simple, simple changes that could mean the world of difference to your employees and possibly increase efficiency and workplace culture, energy, and environment. Yeah. Yeah. And I go back to your calendar example. Mm-hmm. What is one event or calendared event that you would like to replace, you know, some of the ones that we have as national holidays? Yeah. And to answer the second part of the question, just piggybacking off what Adrian said, trust and authenticity and just having good intentions from the heart. Just ask. If you're asking me about how I want to identify from a genuine place of I don't know or from a genuine place of I do not want to disrespect you going forward, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have this statement that if it's from the heart, it reaches the heart. And so if I can tell that you're asking from a genuine place, then that's going to take care of everything else. Goes back to what Julie said, Sabrina, you, Sarah, Adrian, it's been a theme today. Just be intentional. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, even if it's just around um, wanting to get to know you better. Right. Right. Last but absolutely not least, Sabrina, tell us, you know, what's what's one thing for practical change and how do you feel about being uh, asked about how you identify or maybe your background? So I would say for practical change, like Adrian said, being intentional about um representation in those underrepresented groups. And that starts by, you know, revamping that whole internship progress, you know, that internship process, because when we talk about practical change, we start getting, we start getting into checking boxes, like we're supposed to do that. And so it's intentional and making sure not only am I going to give you uh, that opportunity and that seat at the table, but I'm going to give you the resources because I mean, I don't know if you've heard, but it's sometimes challenging when you're just a diversity hire because people are like, okay, you're the token and you're, you feel like, okay, no one else wants me here. I'm just here because someone got fired. So, you know, people can feel when, oh, I'm just, I just have to be here for a number and you really want me here because of my thoughts and my mind. So, you know, be careful with the, oh, this is a practical, easy change. This is gonna look great, but also, you know, be intentional about it. I want you to succeed. Um, And then about how I identify, I never, 
I always tell people when they meet me that I try to find peace between nuance and polarity. And it's just about finding common ground. So when people ask me, um, even if they don't know, or even if I feel like they're being ignorant, I want to try to challenge their intentions to say, I'm not here to harm you. I'm not here to challenge how you feel or what you think I am. I just want to know who you are. So I, I never have an issue with that because I realize that we are all so much similar than we are different. You know, we all, when you strip everything down, we all really want the same things. Yeah, I love it. And I go back to what you were talking about with the internship. I go back to what Adrian was saying as in regards to the CV. How can we strip down the CV so that we can have no unconscious bias? It's about what we've done in our journey and what perspectives can we bring to the table? Take out name, right? Take out address. I don't even know why people put addresses on there. Anyways, you know, take out the countries in which you did the education or in which you worked and just strip it down to the actual core of what you can bring to the table. And that as a, as a piece of change that people could implement right away is something that you absolutely could and could take unconscious bias out just from doing that in the hiring process. So, you know, I, I think that really just wraps it up. I was going to ask you what your one key takeaway would be from this. Maybe if you guys just want to give me one, one word answers, Julian, one word, what should people take away? Be intentional. Yep. I knew that. I knew that was coming. Julie. Yeah. I think you stumped me, but just being uh, authentic. Authentic. Adrian. Uh, you chose the two words I was going to say. Be human. Yeah, we are part yeah. of a human race. Yeah. Yeah. And and don't don't try and let well, sorry, I won't go into it. Be Fine. human. All good. All good. <laughs> Sabrina. Listen. I love that. I love that. And I'm gonna say a few words. And I think it's around knowing what the words actually mean and what the meanings are behind the words and being intentional about the words that you use in conversation and moving forward. Thank you so much to Julie, Adrian, Sabrina, and Julian for joining me today. It was another really honest and raw dialogue. I loved getting into some of the core ideas around equality, diversity, and race, and having the opportunity to really open them up and challenge them. If we are going to create meaningful change, we need to continue to challenge everything, to innovate and develop the best possible strategies for creating the world we all want to live in. Thanks again to our sponsors, Ships, Apex, and Mercado for helping to make this show happen. And don't forget to join us again next time for episode eight of Blended and more lively and important discussions around diversity and inclusion. Thank you guys all for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it.